You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Good morning. Good morning, Kirk. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm a little under the weather, Brackenstein. How are you feeling? I'm riding high. You're riding high? Why? Kirk, I feel like every episode I tell you I'm all fired up, but there is nothing like being in a, in a groove, locked in a training cycle that you're pumped about. Mm. And I had a good workout yesterday. Yeah? Well, why don't you break a little bit? Well, we, we had talked about that I was going to switch to some threshold work for a couple of weeks here to avoid <laughs> burning out or peaking too soon before Jacksonville. And so I went and did a four-mile tempo, which is one of my standard workouts. And I would say I run it harder than threshold generally. I'm the same way. Even though that's not always scientifically advisable. At times like this, I need to be gritty more than I need to have the best adaptation because I just don't have much time. Little backstory, last fall when I was prepping for high rocks, I just wasn't taking care of the running the way I should be. And I went out for a four mile and then a five mile tempo on consecutive weeks on a pancake flat paved bike path. And the first mile was like 620 and was already hurting, kind of like starting to gasp. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm out of shape. But I was in decent, like compromised run shape, but I just didn't have any regular running efficiency. And I'd bring it down to like 617, 615, 610. And then I'd start to feel like I'm almost racing, trying to run 60 on this. This is pathetic. And I was heavier then. But anyways, yesterday, it was four degrees when we got to the trail, Ross and I. And we had had uh, our snow froze over. And then we got another inch or two on top of it. So we had ice and then powder on top. And I clipped off 608 average for four straight miles, feeling like I was at or below threshold the whole time. That's on shitty terrain. Yeah, in the snow. That's a good job. You should feel good about that. I do. That's why I'm riding high. So I'm running faster with less effort than I was before. And I think it has to do with the couple weeks of speed work I did prepping for this. I did 30-30 and then the 30-30 advanced and the 60-60 and 30-30 advanced again. And my efficiency is just so much higher having put in four speed workouts. Yep. That's all about run economy. And with those workouts, by the way, even something as simple, by the way, we're talking about a little snapshot of our running public training plan. Cause those of you who've hopped on board are going to start recognizing some of these things we just talked about. That is how it starts, isn't it? That is how it starts. They start with 30, 30, then 30, 30 uphill, then 60, 60, then 60, 60 uphill. Love that progression. But <sighs> What I notice on those short intervals is those interval workouts look very simple on paper and they look like, oh, it's going to be an easy day, like 30 seconds hard, 30 seconds off or easy. But what you don't realize is that 30 seconds off is not enough time for that heart rate to really come back down. And that rest goes by in the snap of a finger and you end up getting a lot out of that workout. As simple as they are on paper, they're super effective. And so it's really like it's validating to hear that you could feel the effects of that. Yeah. And it, it, reverberates with me because we do like to talk about that we promote light short speed work in the off season and this was why it's not because it makes me faster per se it's that it makes running slower easier because my efficiency is just up that was the big thing i've I've been really focusing on stride breakdown you know that when i fall Mm -hmm. apart i fall apart ugly my form changes entirely and i've been really focusing on that and you and i talked offline about that the other day and 
I kept my form the whole time with less effort than it would usually take to have to stay on top of my form. And I think it's just because of speed intervals. So people on the training plan, they can look forward to that too. Yes, they can. There's gonna be a lot of fast people out in the, uh, on the race course this summer, I think, Bracken. We got to get some gear headbands out there to let the people know. That's right. Um, and then you combine that, you know, that quicker stuff with the threshold work. And when they both merge, ideally you have efficiency and a little more stay power. And then voila, podium. Podium. Yeah. So I'm feeling good. I, running in the snow. And again, four degrees was without wind chill. It was probably about negative eight because they were 15 mile per hour winds. So it was cold. The breathing's not ideal in that. You know, fingers are cold. Mm -hmm. Frontal area is really cold. Uh, toes are cold. Everything's not ideal. And I was still feeling within myself and efficient. So yeah, I'm, I'm pumped up right now, Kirk. You no, know, it's funny is I did, um, I did my first OCR compromised workout this week. Granted, I'm like sick right now. I'm waiting a COVID test. So I'm a little under the weather, but so maybe that factored in, but I did the OCR thousands on the treadmill at 6% incline, uh, just to get a little bit of elevation in there. I feel like that really helps with stride efficiency for me, given that little okay. bit of elevation. But anyways, kick my ass. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, I'm, I'm you know behind the eight ball here, but it was so good to feel that sting again. You know that feeling when you do something hard, like a compromised section, which would be a strength, and then you get back on it to race pace. That feeling of like the explosion in your chest. I don't know how to describe it, but like you're like, you can tell you're, you're trying to catch back up to like the mm -hmm. rate of work you're doing, but like you're already past lactate. And so that feeling I haven't felt in a while. And just like we talked about in our last training Tuesday about like, we don't train. So the race doesn't hurt. We train so we can tolerate it. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, there's that feeling after even something as simple as monkey bars sometimes like there it is. Mm -hmm. And you know, when it hits me, it hits me on the recoveries or on the exercise. Like I can fake it when I'm not fit during the run, but when I hop off to rest or to go do hand release push-ups or lunges, that's when my lungs explode. It's like they're given a second and they like, can't catch back up. It's so funny on the opposite. Anybody who's done these workouts know, um, know what we're talking about here. That's also might be a little sneak peek into the running public training plan. Trying to pique your curiosity, folks. Bracken, I want to brag on one thing real quick before we get into today's episode. And that is, yep. it has now been twice since we've started this podcast a year ago that uh, I felt like I've made it. And both involve alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> First, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I know that seems like a, an interesting take. First time I felt like we've made it was when an athlete of mine sent us running public beer with running public yes. labels. I thought, man, we got beer with our labels on it. We sure have made it, haven't we? I brought that camping this summer yeah. and I felt like such a baller to be sitting around the campfire holding personalized beer cans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jay Fettig, you're the man. And then yesterday, even though I'm sick at home, a gentleman who asked to remain nameless, and I really want to just give him a personal shout out, but you know who you are, sir, said he appreciated what we do so much. He flew into town for work in Minneapolis, lives in Cincinnati and personally came by to drop off a bottle of bourbon from bourbon country, just to say thank you. Shook my hand, I sanitized his hand off because I was a little under weather. We had a chat with our face mask somewhat on outside my porch. We'll say, I came in, he gave us a thank you card. Bracken, I have a thank you card for you. It's not okay. open. Uh, I didn't open it yet. I wanted to see if, you know, I, I was curious whose message was nicer, but I'll let you tell me later. Um, so I got a bottle of bourbon from this gentleman in Cincinnati. So thank you. That's pretty awesome. You've arrived. 
Well, apparently, but both have involved alcohol, which is ironic. But that was very that meant a lot. So thank you, sir. People know the way to your heart. They barely do because I got a sauce spot there. <laughs> um, shall we jump into today's episode, Bracken? Yeah. And can I start? Yeah, please. All right. I have one question here that I think deserves to be hit early while people are still paying attention. <laughs> because okay, we've been sure. talking about getting tougher and getting more dialed in and tolerating more. But this is a safety-based question about toughness. Okay. And it's from uh, Scott um, down in, in uh, North Carolina. Oh, no, he's not North Carolina. He moved to Florida. Poor guy. Neon Spartan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Scott says, question now or for next episode. Some of us don't live in the Arctic tundra and it's warm here. Do you change the no water under an hour rule if temperature and humidity hits a certain level? Um, hmm. Well, no, I don't. <laughs> I feel like I can I can sneak out an hour anywhere, no matter what the conditions, to be honest. But I think that's been earned over time yeah. through training. Um, what is your take? I said, on that? yes, safety supersedes everything. Well, that's a fair answer, but here's why. I believe that you probably don't need it for any given one hour run, no matter what the temperature. However, when you start stacking day after day after day, we don't always live life as an athlete throughout the day. If you're getting home and going to work and then you have other stressors on your plate and you're not hydrating or electrolyting correctly, you can get behind the eight ball and all it takes is that one day and suddenly you're dehydrated and now you've got to undo some damage. And the second is that things go wrong on run sometimes. Mm. You get lost, you roll your ankle. Where he is, you can get attacked by an alligator. You know, mm. Florida, everything in Florida wants to hurt you. It's Sorry. all out to get you. And so even just having it along in worst case scenario, I support that. I used to bring water with me into the mountains on all my runs, even if I didn't plan on taking it, just for the safety blanket of it. We have to differentiate. Like if you're leaving your house and going on these city blocks, we're very calculated. You know, you're not going to get lost. I think anytime I head into trails or anywhere where I believe anything could go wrong and I don't have easy access to help or a building, yeah. I'm always bringing water, of course. But we haven't said that in the past. I just want to reiterate that even though if we don't, a 40-minute run for us on a trail, we might bring water if we're unsure of what's going on, even though we don't intend on needing it. Yeah, that's fair. But I would say if for me, and I think most um, athletes who are well-trained, including Scott, I would say, um, if you have a controlled environment and it's hot, I don't know. I, I, it's a preference thing, really, I, in my opinion. I don't think anybody's – I shouldn't say this. I don't think anybody's going to – end up just fading to the ground and not making it home in 60 minutes no. if they're well-trained. So if performance matters, then maybe something to sip on between interval reps or things like that. Yeah. For sure. but and I will say this, that even though we promote not needing it, I truly don't think there's anything out there that shows you will get worse or not progress if you take a sip of water throughout a 40-minute <laughs> run. That's so, yeah, I just don't want people to think that we're like this blowhard, do not take water. Like, no, we don't use it under an hour, but I don't think it changes anything if you do, other than you could get used to needing water. But I will say as a precautionary, like guys that are really, um, really good in our sport, if you watch some of the races back, like even on a cooler day, you'll see an Atkins grab a cup of water two miles in mm -hmm. when he doesn't need it. He's just using it to get ahead and be smart. And so yeah. like, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Well, and we talked about it in one of our posts about nutrition, that race fueling is trickier than just take your gel and move on. That if there's not water in your, your system, you can't digest and you don't have gastric emptying that can occur. And so 
part of it might be getting ahead of it. And the other part might be that he knows he's taking a gel 15 minutes later. He's getting five ounces of water in there now so he can take the gel. Yeah, that's true. You got to do that, actually. I notice a big difference when I do that. Oh, for sure. So anyways, we spent a lot of time on that, but I do want to be clear. We're not just calling people wimps if they're taking water. Oh, I've called people wimps before, but not for that reason. Yeah. All right. Question from Abby here. And I like this question. I'll be curious what you say to it. <clears throat> it seems like I'm surrounded by natural born runners. They have athletic parents and athleticism runs in their genes. Me, on the other hand, hated running in elementary through middle school and ran a mile at 10 minutes all out. My elementary school gym teacher warned me that I have extremely tight legs and I wouldn't be good at athletics. <laughs> whoever, whoever this gym teacher is, by the way, needs the people's elbow. Hey, you, you got tight legs. <laughs> You're going to suck at athletics. Also, my family struggles with obesity and diabetes. I started running my running journey in 11th grade and I fell in love. It took so much hard work and determination, but I now can run half marathons at seven minute pace. It's a big improvement. And one was on and was one of the top runners on my collegiate team. I was just wondering, will I only be able to get so far because of the genes I've been dealt? I'm already struggling with mobility just because I'm so tight. So I do yoga four times a week, but there's only so much yoga and running someone can do before they hit their physical limitation. Sorry for the spam, but I love the podcast. Keep it up. I know that was a longer one. What do you have to say to Abby? First of all, everyone should read the book, The Sports Gene by David Epstein. Great book. Haven't read it. Second of all, I personally know far too many runners who are so unathletic or tight or inflexible that are phenomenal runners that yeah. I truly don't believe that there is correlation between flexibility and running ability. Sometimes I would say people who are super flexible, it actually is counterproductive. Yeah. So don't, don't get hung up on it. Always seek to improve it, but it doesn't show you your ceiling. It just shows you your body's weaknesses. That's it. Yep. <clears throat> just speaking to that flexibility thing. Did you have something you wanted to roll off of there? Yeah. I just want to say there's this guy, Paul Moran, that I ran uh, against in high school and he was okay in high school. And then senior year started running really well. He went from like 1740 to 1620 in one year in cross. Mm -hmm. And then he went to lacrosse and uh, ran 1440 in the 5k and got an all American status. And I don't know if he could reach much past his shins. And he had zero coordination and kind of looked like a spider out there running. Like you would look at this guy and say, if you watched him warm up, you wouldn't pick him on your squad. And yet the race started and he was an animal. And I always, yeah, I always flash back to him. I think if Paul Moran can turn into a good distance runner, any one of us don't have anything to worry about because he didn't have a frame. He didn't have a flexibility um, ability. He didn't have any athleticism that was easily identifiable, but he just worked himself into it. There were two guys on my college cross country team who started, who barely, we always had like a time trial in the beginning of the year. Top 24 made the, the roster, mm -hmm. 40 guys showed up. The other ones were like, see you, see you later. Um, <clears throat> there were a couple guys who started, it made one of those last two spots. Um, and one, maybe both ended up being in top five and scoring for us later on in their career, 18 minute five cares in high school guys that just walked on and barely made the squad and improved. And, and I wouldn't say looking at them, they were the most athletically gifted either. And neither of the guys I'm thinking of were super athletically inclined, like as far as coordination, ball, sport type stuff, uh, both worked their way up. So I would like to tell you that if you've gone from 10 minute all out mile to seven minute pace for a half marathon, the answer to your question is, I don't believe that there's a govern on you any more so than anybody else. Yes. 
And there's no reason to stop clawing and fighting to get better because uh, that can be earned. And obviously your body responds to stimulus. Yeah. So giving it to it. And, and people like to say there's no such thing as talent. Talent's a myth. And that's no, a, that's wrong. That's a lie, yeah. Ta- talent's a real thing. But talents aren't as easily identifiable as we think they are. They're the blue chippers who roll out of bed and at 16 break four in the mile with very little training. And he's like, yeah, that's a super talented person. But there are different types of talent. There's a talent for absorbing training, people who can handle big volume or people that can continue late. A lot of the people who are supremely talented on the front end plateau really early. And it happens regardless of training style. It's not always that they get burnt out. It's just that they respond so quickly that they respond right up to their ceiling and they hit it when they're 19 and that's it. And there's a talent for being able to improve later in life. Uh, CJ Albertson is one that comes to mind. He just had a fantastic marathon trials experience and he wasn't anything special in college. He just kept, his talent was if he keeps working, he doesn't stop getting better. Mm -hmm. And some people's talent is I can improve after 40. There are some people that cannot improve after 40 and others can. So just because your talent doesn't jump off the page when you're 10 years old doesn't mean that your your talent is any less. It means your genes have given you different talents and skills. Well, yeah, and there's also the the intangibles about simple things like work ethic, cerebralness mm-hmm. when it comes to your training, being a student of the sport, fighting and clawing, and the non-excuse, I'm going to get it done regardless and keep pushing and striving to get better intangibles, which some would say are talent, the talent to stay injury-free, which trumps everything over time, which some of the most talented people I know don't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of ways around the genetic gene pool is what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, look, let's look at Jacksonville last year. Would you say that I am the least talented person that came to Jacksonville last year? No, you didn't come to Jacksonville last year. Well, exactly. My talent apparently couldn't even get me to the start line. There are people who are less talented that all of them beat me because I couldn't make it there healthy. Mm, you, walked, you walked me into that one bracket, didn't you? Yeah, but there's a talent for not getting injured. Mm-hmm. And maybe that doesn't affect your, your ceiling, but it keeps you away from your floor. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. All right, moving to the next one. We got Matthew. Matthew asks, I know you're supposed to have your arms and legs move together while running. I'm struggling with keeping my arms swinging at the same cadence while trying to maintain 180 steps per minute. How can I improve my arm speed to match my legs? If this is the Matthew Duhan that I'm thinking about, this this is a guy I work with. He and his wife, Leah. Okay. They're pretty awesome people, by the way. But Matt has some of the most unique uh, challenges that I've ever witnessed. With that, I've never heard of that. Yeah, and so when he focuses on cadence, he, he his body doesn't naturally sync up. <clears throat> How does that happen? I don't know. I've I've never even seen this. His wife said it's the most bizarre thing. She'll look over at him running, and he'll be <laughs> his legs will be going one eighty, and his arms will be going one fifty. <laughs> I'm trying to picture this. Actually, Matthew, I'd love to see a video of this. Well, yeah. The three of us were on a video call this week, and she was describing it. And I thought, and we've all talked about it, that most of us would have to really, really try hard to unsync our arms and legs. Mm-hmm. So what's your advice for him? Well, I didn't have anything good at the time. I've been thinking about it and... <laughs> Bracken, what happened there, man? I fell off my stool. <laughs> oh, what man. on earth? 
No more pre-drinking. Apparently your upper and lower body are out of sync too. <laughs> I just went to demonstrate to Kurt because we have video going that you can't see what I was going to do and I fell off the back of my stool into the wall. <laughs> Talk about not having the athletic jeans bracket, I thought. Oh, just oh, no. Those. That's embarrassing. <laughs> that was awesome. You almost uh, completely disappeared off my screen. That was good. I'm leaving this in here. <laughs> Continue. Uh, I'm thinking some sort of band system okay. where – I'm, I don't know how you would work it, but something with bands where you have, you have bands pulling equal and opposite while you're running to teach yourself this. But yeah, if he, if he focuses arms, his legs don't follow. If he focuses legs, his arms don't follow. I have one recommendation that comes to mind. It's going to seem stupid. Look in a mirror. <laughs> no, that would seem logical. That's not what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, uh, if you get on an apparatus, like an elliptical with mm. the arms and you get the cadence up as high as you can. You're going to be forced to go into in sync. I know it's not the run motion, but it's a start, and your arms are forced to go with your legs there. So that's the one way I can I can see shortcutting that. I know that's bizarre, but that's the first thing that comes to my mind. No, that's actually really logical. <laughs> I, I'm a bit embarrassed. A that I fell off my stool. But B that I didn't think of that. Oh, so I got I my band situation. <laughs> yeah, but this isn't, you know, you're not running, you're on an elliptical and that, you know, that that's going to throw the body's mechanics off as well. So I still like it. Matt, <laughs> go work with Kirk. <laughs> I, you're in good hands, man. Um, I don't know how many you got screenshot, Bracken, but I got 25 screenshots for this one. So I guess I'll just roll off another one. You quick. roll, but I want to, I want to do one and then you can like hit your stride. All right. This isn't even a question. This, I just had to call you out. We talked a few episodes back about me being terrible at skiing and then falling for the first time because I planted my pole in front of my ski. Mm. We got a message from Dr. Steve Best who says, uh, this past training, uh, sorry, past training Tuesday got me fired up, but also it made me go back to episode two with Hobie. What's so great about that? One episode starts with Kirk admitting to a near wipeout from his own ski pole in the next episode, almost 100 later, ends with or starts with Bracken doing the exact same thing. <laughs> That's pretty funny actually. I remember that. I remember that story. Hunter's calling right now, but sorry, we're in we're in a flow state here, Kirk. I can't answer this. We can't turn this into the old obstacle dominate. Name dropping. Uh that is ironic. We're just one year apart in our progression. <laughs> but it felt it made me feel better that you've done it. I've done it a bunch, yeah. I told you it took to my fifth ski to get my my stride and I will tell you I think I did, I don't know, like 16 miles at 514 pace on skis the other day. And I was, I mean, and my progression started just like yours. That's all I'm going to say. So point being is there's a lot of hope. I had a question about that. What is your terrain like? Is it flat or is it undulating? Undulating. Yeah. Um, there's two big climbs, but those really big fast. climbs, those two big climbs are uh, followed by two pretty big descents. Um, I think in that I got like a thousand feet in 16 miles, 15 miles, not a ton. I don't know what yours is like, but um, something like that. I'm not even seeking those out because I can't go up hills like that yet. Or like 999 feet I got in that or something. Just Okay. Like well, I'm impressed by your skiing. You're going to get there because I know you're an athlete. Um, Zane, Zane Freeze. Uh, Zane, Zane's wife bought him coaching with me for Christmas. That was her Christmas gift, which is fantastic. Zane and I just started working together. But Cadence seems to be uh, a theme here. Um <clears throat> Why is it that when I have the recommended cadence around 180, my heart rate is way too high, even at a slow pace? Tonight's easy run kicked my butt when it totally shouldn't have. This is a while before we started working together. He asked this one. What do you think about that? I, there's no efficiency at that motion yet. 
and that comes over time. But this brings up a good point, which is you have to tactically work on cadence. If it mm -hmm. takes you outside your heart rate range for the day, like an easier recovery run, then you have to compromise your cadence in order to get your heart rate under control. And you have to work on your cadence with either little doses during the run or you save it for your quality days or for stride work or something like that. I think there's two two ways people go about increasing their cadence. And one is they allow themselves to just be really relaxed and shuffle at a slow pace. And then the other who gets super rigid and tight mm -hmm. in order to make it happen, right? They like tense up to do these little micro strides, which is not the purpose. And so if I were to like roll the dice and guess, I would guess that Zane, you are too tense when you're doing it. Instead, you just need to like melt into the ground and just let your body kind of meander instead of like rigidly trying to force 180. I don't know how else to describe it, but I know you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, because this is why one of the reasons barefoot running got popular. If you stepped outside barefoot, you could run 200 steps per minute real easily. You could run yeah. 180 no problem because you'd be taking 18 inch strides. Yeah. It doesn't make you a good runner, but we that means we can all hit it. It's just how do you hit it and what's the cost? Yeah. I would just say, Zane, focus on being as relaxed as possible with it instead of tensing up. Because when you tense up, you're going to shunt blood a lot. You're going to require a lot more uh, extra oxygen that you really don't need because those muscles are working, which should be more relaxed. So that would be my take. We've said it before, but I don't hit 180. Yeah, me either. My easy runs are 68 to 70 when I'm thinking on it. And yesterday that, that snowy tempo, and it's different because of terrain, but I averaged 175 for the four miles. Oh, good. On my intervals the other day, I averaged up closer to like 190 something on the ons and 160 on the offs. So my my I have a wide range of it, and obviously it'd be better to tighten that range up so that I'm I'm higher on my easy. But it's a process. We can't I can't just force myself to it. I have to incrementally move up. And I will say, like if you look at the sport, we talk about 180 and cadence a lot. If you still look at the top end athletes in our sport, like who really is at a cadence of 180? Hobie Call maybe at all times, mm -hmm. maybe Mark Botris when you look at him run. But then you look at some of the other powerhouses like a Killian, maybe VJ's even close to 180, I would say. Yeah. Like some of the other players like a Killian or like a like an Atkins, they're not at 180. Other guys. So like it is variable. Like a lot of times when we talk about 180 guys, one, we're talking about injury prevention, landing your body underneath your body's your body weight versus in front of, which minimizes breaking effect. So one, you preach it because it, it helps minimize reaction impact from your stride. And then two, it can promote efficiency, which can just be less costly energy wise. For Zane, sounds like it's more costly, which means he needs to work on that relaxation piece. But like, it's not the end all be all, but it's something really good to focus on if you're struggling with injury or you don't feel terribly efficient when you're running. So perfect. Know people know that. All right. Um, you got one or you want me to roll? No, I'll roll with it. Um, MB Lassenol says, <clears throat> background, 46-year-old converted runner, 5'11", 175, former D1 football player, always done strength-based strength training. Okay. He says, over the last two years, I've run about 1,500 to 1,600 miles. Good for you. And have done numerous training blocks based on upcoming races. The one distances that I've always struggled with is that mid-range distance. As an example, during OCR stars, I took third in my age group with a 501 mile. <clears throat> At 40? Yeah. Yeah. This is a new athlete of mine, actually. He's a he had a collegiate uh, D1 cross-country runner nephew pace him for it. He ran 445 this last year. However, he says, uh, where am I? 
However, I got pounded in the six mile time trial around 39 minutes. Any ideas on how to get better at that mid distance speed? Based on the mile and 5K times, I feel like I should be able to run 36 to 37 minutes in the 10K, but I can't. I mean, I, I know where we're going to go with this already, but the floor is yours. Well, it's the age old problem that ball sport and fast twitch athletes face, which is that our foot speed, our ability to churn at a high intensity far outpaces the work we've put in on the aerobic front. Mm -hmm. And our entire <laughs> goal is to close that gap, whereas other people can run all day, but they don't have the get up and go. So we are just underdeveloped aerobically. Simple as that. I think so. I mean, it, you can dive as deep as you want, but yeah, from a surface level, aerobic development has to happen over the, the course of years, which you've already done putting in years of explosive work as an athlete. So what do you do about it? You increase volume, you follow the 80-20 principle, and you increase both, both your aerobic and lactate thresholds with targeted workouts over the course of years. If your mile is good because of your natural skill set and years of training fast twitch work, you have to match those years aerobically. Yeah. Um, what is it you, you think of uh, progression, not in terms of days and weeks, but in months and years as a runner? Yeah. That's a really hard concept to grasp, but it's true. Um, him and I chatted last week because um, he just hopped on board. In fact, he's in his first week um, on the plan. Um, and really, when you talk about that, it's more like, you know, what's happening is he's kind of breaching his lactate threshold and then he's just fading home, right? He just can't sustain that level of work over a long period of time. So I agree with you. I think a guy like that who feels like they're, they're short on the state power, I agree, his mile doesn't translate to his 10K, um, needs to do a lot of that threshold tempo work, work on just getting that heart rate up and keeping it there and buffering lactate more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I, I talk about it with athletes and I use myself as an example all the time. My mile PR says that I should be about a 220 marathoner. Exactly. My two mile PR says I should be a 230 marathoner. My 5K PR says I should be a 240, 245 marathoner. And my 10K <laughs> PR says I should be cracking three hours. Like as I go up, my speed decays. I always wonder how, how accurate those are. You always got to wonder though, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not accurate in predicting, but it's accurate in terms of equivalent performances. Yeah. And so I can't match my equivalent efforts as the duration goes up. And so like the whole focus of my career is meet the other end of my spectrum, try to bring it up to par. I would just like to see how those, because you hear this a lot, like when your race calculators based on performances, your Garmin watch will give you that right now. Yeah. Mine says right now I'm a 1555 5K or says I got myself in that kind of shape bracket. But is it true? Is it true? Yeah. Okay. I always wonder how those are calculated. Do they take a sample group study of hundreds of people and then have them race all the distances, for example, and get a median? I'm just super curious if that's just like based on yeah. like calculations or if there was an actual study or two done on it. Well, a lot of it's based off the IAAF uh, performance tables for running that they have, you know, 100 years of info on comparing male and female and uh, event to event in performance standards. And so each performance has an associated point score with it. And you can just compare what is a what is a 350 mile worth in a marathon. And that's how they always will talk about what records are the softest because they can say what an equivalent performance is. But it certainly doesn't mean that if you can do one, you could do the other. It means if you were as good at the marathon as you were at the, five, the 5k, this is what you'd be running. Yeah. Just interesting to think about. They're super depressing. 
For you, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next one, Dakota Bean. Uh, I know you guys speak a lot about overtraining and how any training somewhat affects the central nervous system, but would y'all, must be from the self, classify easy zone one or zone two cycling for say 45 to 60 minutes as an off day? Or should someone take a full day off of all activity weekly? Now this is this is open to subjectivity. Yeah, I like this though. We just obviously launched the training plan this week. And so we just, I just posted our first active recovery day for this Sunday. Sunday in the training plan is always a quote unquote off day. And if I remember correctly, the verbiage is that we promote an entire day off per week to most athletes, but off looks different to different athletes and at different points of training cycles. And that can mean like right now for me, an off day means stretching and mobility. A couple of weeks from now, an off day is going to be mobility and and biking. And when I'm feeling like a monster, an off day might be five miles casual with a friend with no pace in mind. So off means off from any sort of damage. Yeah, I I think off. I I'm a big fan of the off means off. I like to take the off day to not think about mm-hmm. racing and training. Do all I say do non-athlete things. I'm not allowed to do any athlete things. There was a, a teammate of mine, Liz Woodworth. I don't know if you heard of Liz Woodworth in college. She um, was like a two oh. She came close. Two oh three half, half miler. Um, and one of the most talented women I've ever I've ever met in my life. Um, and she was a prime example of this. She was not a lot. She was forced by coach to take one day a week where she didn't have to work. She didn't have to do any training. She had no obligations. And she performed hands down better when she took a full day off every week to really allow that recovery. Because even on her recovery days, then she was on her feet all day at work, for example, because she was working a college job. And so for her, I saw that come through. She was struggling with injury, fatigue, mm-hmm. yada. So anyways, I've been a big fan of that principle is like, just take it. It's okay to like take a deload day. I will say with this guy's question, uh, Dakota, zone two, eh, I don't like the idea of that. He said zone one, I thought. Zone one, zone two cycling for okay. 45 to 60 minutes. I would rather just see a go for a walk or something, to be honest. I don't think you're, you're not gaining anything from that day. And if you've put in a hard weeks of training, that day taking off or keeping easy is going to benefit you more than doing something. Because you don't want to stack fatigue. You just build just a little more than you needed to that day. And then that bleeds into your next week. And then pretty soon you do fall into overtraining. So I think err on the side of caution over everything, but that's just a personal bias. Well, and that's it. It comes down to personal. I know athletes who are worse when they're taking an off day. Hmm. They they feel creaky. They feel stiff. They're out of rhythm. And mentally, it shakes them. Yeah. And I know athletes like yourself who, if they can get away and not think about it one second, they are rejuvenated and refreshed. Mm-hmm. And off days, I think, are 50-50 physical and mental. Like You have to be ready. I, I think the final thing I said on that post for our training plan was that the only purpose of this is to prepare you and get you dialed in for the next week of training. Yeah. You have to be ready to absorb the next week. And for some people, that means they have to stay active. And for other people, it means they have to get away. And we support both. Yep. It is very individualized. That's for sure. Um, <clears throat> next question. Matthew McLean, I would want to say it is. I can't see his, the end of his last name. Um, what's the best way to do a barbed wire crawl? I've noticed while watching Hunter and Atkins in the Spartan games that they didn't seem to care if they hit the wire. Hunter was actually doing a bear crawl and hitting every wire. Does that not tear you up or is it not that bad? Well, Spartan games did not have barbs on it. It was just wire. There's your- That's your, and, and it was high. 
The barbed wire technique deter is determined by the ground and the wire. If it is high, it is fastest to bear crawl of some sort. If it is low, it generally fastest to roll. And the soupier it is, the more that uh, crawling through it is good. And the harder it is, the more traction you can get for, for rolling. Mm -hmm. I will say, it sounds like maybe you haven't done a lot of barbed wire crawls. Um, <clears throat> those barbed wire crawls will cut you up <laughs> and oh, yeah. they will snag your clothes if you have it on and it will, it will cost you. I've seen a handful of people now have to go to the hospital afterwards and get stitched up in antibiotics after Spartan races on their lower back in particular, when their ass is sticking up and they're doing the bear crawl, but not low enough. So, uh, yep, they're going to cut you up. And uh, yeah, the difference was they had no barbs on that wire. If you watch a standard barbed wire crawl, if you watch the, the pro people go through it, you generally see that they roll under the wire or scooch underneath it and then try to crawl or bear crawl in between because that generally turns out to be the fastest combination. I'm still shocked there are barbs on it. Me too, actually. I can't believe that they still can get away with that. It's gotta be a few people with tetanus running around. <laughs> Well, I mean, what did Mike Ferguson's back look? He looked like he got attacked by a shark one day from that. You remember that? Oh, like well, I was with him. Killer. I was. It was in Las Vegas, um, our first opener, actually three years ago. Yeah, his back had a almost an inch gash in it because it split his lower back the long way, and then the skin peeled open. I had to take him to the hospital right after the the race, and he was bleeding all the way down his back, his pants is not good. Then he couldn't race the next day. Yeah, I I just saw that picture in my phone this week as I was going through finding uh. Q&A questions. You could see his flesh in there, like when he would like, like you could almost see the muscle contract in there. Like it was very- Little fat globules in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was yeah, it was a real deal. So stay low. Um, Matt Mankeys asks, uh, you mentioned training for the Uphill Athletes books, Muscular Endurance Workout. You must've mentioned that. Yes. Somebody did. Uh, this is from a while ago. So there is an indoor workout, box step-ups, lunges, et cetera, and outdoor workouts, short duration of uphill bounding or longer efforts running uphill. My questions, if an athlete has access to hills and mountains to do an outdoor ME workout, should they not even consider doing indoor ME workouts, assuming the athlete has a stable foundation in strength already? Is the athlete wasting their time energy if doing the indoor workout over an outdoor workout? Thank you. Very cerebral question. I like it. These are the questions that make my heart all warm and fuzzy, Kirk. Uh-huh. The nitty gritty. They're taking the next step in their thinking. I like that. Also, before we even answer it, whose training does this sound like that we interviewed? Who does this sound like? Yeah. Box step ups, lunges, or or use whatever hill you have. Our training. Also Mikhail. Oh, Mikhail, yeah. That's this too. Is mixed training to a T. Oh yeah, I didn't think about that. The guy who claims that he's not good at training himself and he's not this great mind. This guy He's also humble, yeah. On his own, came up with a workout that people who wrote a book about training also came up with a <laughs> few years after him. That's a, that's a good point. So what do you think? I like this question. I think that you're just fine doing what you've been doing. That you're just fine. If you have a good strength foundation and you have great hills and mountains, you're fine with that. But I don't like leaving a stone unturned. So I would say you try the other version as well. And if you are more sore or fatigued or compromised during it than you normally would be, then you've identified a slight imbalance somewhere and then you can cycle that in from time to time. And maybe you have to front load it for a few weeks and then you can just hit it once every three to four weeks after that. But I recommend at least trying it and seeing what the feeling is like. 
I think um, I agree with that. I think getting on terrain is always like the priority, right? Like getting your feet on real earth. So I would lean towards, you know, getting on the mountain, but um, I don't really know your tendencies as an athlete and your strength base. It sounds like you have a good foundation already. Um, and I'm assuming you're doing strength work outside of this other prescribed work you're talking about. So um, it could go either way. I would lean towards getting on terrain. I would say like a good change up would be like having this in your back pocket, let's say if there's inclement weather, uh, maybe on like a deload week when you just, it's like the one week you can change your stimulus and see what happens. Uh, maybe a little less pounding in the running front, but a little more in the strength uh, weight room front. So um, I don't know. I guess I'd have to do them both and know you better as an athlete. Could you just tell without knowing more really what, what would be best? It's hard to say, right? I do believe firmly that our greatest strengths almost always tie into our greatest weaknesses. And this applies to training location and equipment. If you have access to great mountains, your tendency is to lean into those mountains. And as great as a tool as that is, the tendency then becomes to sometimes use it at the expense of something else. And you are then bound by the confines of your mountain. Mm -hmm. For example, when I lived in Colorado, I ended up tweaking my workouts to meet my mountain rather than tweaking my mountain to meet the intended workout, where I found myself doing much longer work and it had to be at a lower intensity because it was so long because I had such big mountains to use where I didn't get as much, you know, three minute and under interval work because I could go for three hours straight if I wanted to. And so you start to actually, your strength tends to override other smart principles sometimes. And I think we need to be aware of that as athletes. I agree with that. It's a good point too. I didn't even think about that. Although you were a monster when you were out there. I was, but there were certain areas I decreased my ability in. And we talked about that, how out there I could climb and descend better than ever, but I couldn't do it multiple times in a race mm -hmm. because I fell in love with, why would I turn around now and go down and do it again when I could just keep going up this mountain? So mm -hmm. we, it overshadows some of our unseen weaknesses sometimes. I agree with that. Uh, Matt Plastina says, there's a, there's a bunch here, but I'm going to try to just get to the point. What I was trying to get at is that I absolutely understand that anyone will totally benefit from good coaching. I've been an athlete my whole life, so I can navigate myself from zero current to X percent fitness, whatever he means by that. My question was basically, how do I solve for the X or what inflection point will my money spent add to the max incremental benefit? I think what he's, <clears throat> I think what he's asking um, is how do you determine the worth of a coach and is the amount I'm improving worth the money is what I think I'm asking. He does preface this, which say, <laughs> I, I think it may have been unintentionally mildly insulting to you both as coaches. So I apologize. <laughs> I can't quite understand the question because it's screenshotted from a long time ago, but I think that's what he's getting at. What do you have to say to that? That's a good question. And, and I don't think there's an answer. Um, it, it's not like financial planning where I could look at you and say, Hey, if you invest this much in, we can guarantee a four to six percent return every single year. Because while things happen with the markets, it's not like you can roll an ankle with your stocks, or it's not like you can run into a um, you know exercise-induced depression, or it's not like you can run into the fact that, oh man, we spent too much time aerobic versus anaerobic based on the information we had. So there's just, it's less absolute. And I don't think there's a way you can quantify it. Here's what I would say. If you are confident that you can get yourself from point A to point B, as long as you keep arriving there, you're probably good. But if you find yourself coming up short of certain goals or metrics, 
and you've never been able to break through that, that's when you that's when you turn to it. It's when you know, I've taken myself as far as I can take myself. If you still haven't hit your ceiling, but you know you have room to improve your own coaching, do that first. I say, if you don't even prove it all, it's worth it. I'll tell you why. Again, I'm biased. I believe in coaching. I believe in outside help. Um, some of the best athletes in our sport have coaches and we're coaches. So obviously we're looking at this from a skewed perspective, but how much is it worth to not have to think about your training? How much is it worth to take that stress alone off your plate when you already have a lot of other decisions to make? How much uh, is it worth to just completely surrender control? And so you can put energy into other areas of your life. In my opinion, even if you know you're not going to get that much better. Let's say you're an aging athlete and you were high level before. You know your performances are only going to go one way and that's down. But the value of taking that off your plate, I think you can't put a price tag on. No matter, as long as you trust the person, there's the intangibles. Somebody to just bounce ideas off when you're injured or when something pops up. So you don't have to think about it and you can at least have confidence in the route you're choosing. So I would argue that whether you improve or not, I still think X amount of money is worth it. How do you feel about that, Bracken? Can't argue that. And I like the idea of the aging athlete. Sometimes uh, improving is decelerating. Slower. The, <laughs> yeah, decelerating your rate of of getting worse, of getting slower. And so, yeah, I, I can't argue that. I know that there are two types of people. There are the people that really respond to coaches, and there are the types of people who really get off on doing it themselves. I agree. And which one you are, I think, dictates that. And I also do know that as someone who is self-coached and has been since my fifth year of college, I've left things on the table because it's really hard to take the blinders off and see it from an outside perspective. So I promote self-coaching. We talk about on here a lot. Best case scenario is you absorb what I talk about and then you go out and coach yourself really successfully. But at the same time, it's also really difficult to, to stay out of your own way sometimes. Yeah. Oh yeah. We, and even as coaches, we're not perfect. We fall into our own traps and tendencies and could benefit from outside perspective for sure. So, um, Matt Malone says, this is an interesting themes. These themes like keep popping up. I get horrible motion sickness and dizzy easily. So I can't roll through the barbed wire crawl without potentially compromising the rest of my race. Any tips on how to get through the crawl quickly without rolling? I think the next fastest way is this combination bear crawl crab, like scuttle sideways like sideways push off with your back arm and leg and pull forward with your front side but it's very taxing to your shoulders and your core and your hips and so if 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 you have identified i cannot roll and i never will be able to then this has to be a staple of your training i'm talking multiple times per week finishing your strength sets or your run workout with targeted crawl technique and skill and endurance work uh, you're going to look foolish and feel foolish, but like if this is important, you you just have to do that, unfortunately. Yeah, the technique you're talking about is you almost move forward at like a 45 degree angle with your yeah. body. You're like leading with one hand with the other hand trailing and you're kind of crawling around like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Yes. Like the way, if any, it's a weird reference, but like if you watch him skirt around the rocks in that movie, that's what you're talking about. Or Spider-Man on a wall. Sure, Spider-Man on a wall is a little better. Uh, I remember actually, Bracken, um, my first stadium race in Green Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing, if you remember, they put us under the crawl. It was like, we turned a 90 degree corner. It was a terrible setup, actually five yeah. meters into the race. And then we had a crawl and you put 20 meters on the field in 10 seconds mm -hmm. and you use that technique. It was absolutely incredible. That was a bear crawl, like a gallop that day. Cause it was a high wire with no barbs. 
you actually looked like a creature crawling through the woods. Like it was not human. It was animalistic. I wish I had a video of that because I remember seeing that and I was already so far behind. I didn't even understand how it happened. That goes to my childhood. Well, regardless. I spent like four years of my life thinking I was a cheetah and chasing my brother around the house doing that is my main mode of transportation. <laughs> okay, well, maybe that helped a little bit. But, but the point is, I spent time doing that motion to the point where I don't practice that motion now. But, you know, 25, 28 years later, I still have the biomechanical efficiency in that movement where it doesn't cost me effort to bear gallop. And it's not bear crawl, it's bear gallop. But barbed wire crawl still taxes me like crazy when I have to crawl. So if you put that time in now, no matter how foolish it looks and feels, you will become efficient at it in the race. Yeah. And and I feel for you. I'm one of those non-rollers, um, Matt, because it throws me off too much. If I lose five seconds on the barbed wire crawl because I have to crawl through it instead of roll, I will make up for that once I start running again. So like, I get it. You're not alone. Um, a lot of the guys that are really good at it say, you know, they focus on a, a certain point every time their head yeah. rolls around, they, they recenter themselves on a spot. And I guess that helps a lot. And then switching directions, sure. every four rolls seems to be what the guys do. For me, it just doesn't work that well. If you target one spot, you let your head stay there until the last second and whip around to it. It certainly helps, but I still, this is my 10th year in the sport. I get up out of the barbed wire crawl and I have 15 to 20 seconds of cobwebs before I'm back to normal. It's, I know, I understand that yours sounds worse, but it's also kind of one of, it's like compromised running. It's just part of the game. You're going to be, you're going to be dizzy for a bit and you just get used to running with it and then it clears up. Yeah. Um, Jason Deem, I feel pretty lame to have a running question top of mind on Christmas day. <laughs> However, <laughs> I actually appreciate that Jason. However, what if any endurance running benefit can be achieved through rucking? I run most of the OCR circuits and I like to incorporate a few Savage Go Ruck events this year. Well, um, I'm a fan of rucking, believe it or not. I never talk about it. I have a few athletes currently competing in ruck races. Um, I am a fan of putting a load on your body and carrying it no matter how it is done. I think that stimulus is super beneficial. I can't necessarily put a finger on it, even if it's just for perspective of the load getting lighter when you don't have it translating to ease of non-ruck running. So, um, yeah, I guess the real question, endurance benefit achieved through rucking, that is the real question. So how do you address that specific? First of all, I'm going to say there's a difference between a crappy backpack load and rucking. <laughs> That's true. If you don't have a frame on your back of some sort, you are going to be pulling your body all out of whack and torquing it weird. So I'm a fan of carrying under load. I like it to be a high placed balanced load. But that aside, the longer and steeper your event is, the more it's going to help you. The more there is power hiking and staying power and just having to stay moving strong once your body starts to really fatigue and break down, the better, the more it will apply to you. And the, the lower intensity your, your competition is, the better, the more it's going to help you. If you're training for a 24-hour race or world's toughest or an ultra beast in steep mountains, I think it directly carries over. It's not going to help you in Jacksonville other than maybe carries through the muck and maybe some stability while running. It'll strengthen your hip and back a little bit. Hips. Oh. I don't think it's going to help you much in the shorter stuff. It's not certainly helping with run efficiency or economy, no. um, but it's helping with the grindy stay power. Um, there is also a difference because some people ruck and by ruck, they mean they go for a hike with a heavy bag on. And then some run with it. 
they shuffle along and they run and do quality work. So from an aerobic standpoint, um, if you're running with that thing, you might be getting some like actual high end work in, and then we can talk about improving aerobic development through that. But if you're mostly going up for hikes, I guess if mountain trains involved, that could also be the case with aerobic development. But um, I don't, I'm going to say it doesn't translate to short, translates to long, but there's those intangibles like you talked about, carries, stay power, maybe working on some strength of the, the, the rear chain, the core, things like that. I have never programmed it for someone training for less than a 12-hour race. Unless they're training for a ruck event, I would assume. Correct. But I don't know if I've ever trained someone for a ruck. Outside of someone that uh, a couple of people I've trained when they were training to meet military standards, yep, to try to beat their PT test or whatever their their current focus coming up. But outside of that, only time I think I did no, that wasn't less than twelve hours anyway. So yeah, it's always long, grindy stuff. I think the only way I'd really program it. Let's say somebody is not going to be rucking; they're they're just going to be OCR racing or trailing. The only way I would program it and feel really good about it would be like go to your ski hill and hike hard up for 200 feet of gain and then easy down, like just building some power that yeah. way where I can see being beneficial for sure for everybody, I would think. But the same thing would be putting a weight vest on really yeah. just it's comfortable. <laughs> um, Mary Drews, I have a question for y'all. How do you train for altitude when you don't live in altitude? Ah, the age old question, Mary. I live in Boise where it's about 2000 feet elevation. Uh, what are you sitting at Bracken in Milwaukee, by the way? Oh, we're under 400 for sure. Yeah. I think I'm at six or seven here. Okay. So 2000 feet sounds like a dream to me, doesn't it, Bracken? Sounds like I couldn't breathe there. <laughs> uh, we have the Sawtooth Mountains, but those are about two hours away and I can't always get there every weekend. Is there a way to simulate elevation runs to get ready for some high elevation races? Or is once every like two weeks long run at elevation in the mountains good enough? Mary, unfortunately, that's not good enough to induce, to induce uh, I don't know, acclimation. It'll help mentally but not physically. What it will help with is you're going to know exactly how it feels to go run at altitude and you're going to get to know your body at altitude and how it responds. So you're going to be much better off doing what you are doing than if you weren't, because at least you're going to be able to feel it out, understand how your body responds under those conditions. But physiologically, going only that often will induce, I hate to say it, zero physiological adaptation. But there's power in understanding your body in those conditions. And so there's power in that. So I would tell you to keep doing it. What do you say? You're absolutely right. <laughs> and I would hit intensity. I'd hit long and I'd hit threshold out there to feel it, but it will be all mental. Uh, other than that, heat, humidity is the poor man's altitude. So, I mean, even the U.S. Olympic marathoners, when they're prepping um, for altitude races or, or people doing anything else than that, um, you make your poor man's altitude chamber which is you take your treadmill or whatever machine you're using and you seal off the room as best you can. Just put a blanket under the door and you put a humidifier in there and a space heater and you wear more clothes. You basically treat it like a wrestler with added humidity and you do your workout with that. It's miserable, but humidity is the next best physiological stimulus to prepare you for altitude. Do you know why that is? We should explain that. Why Why does heat and humidity simulate altitude? How How possibly could it? I mean, I have an answer for this, but do you, do you have something off the top of your head? Yeah, well, first of all, it affects your heart and your lungs immediately. Our heart rate's affected by heat and humidity, and the respiratory response to humidity is actually almost like strength training. The air is heavier and it's less efficient for you to, to use that. And then all of your systems 
when the more you have to sweat, the more it pulls energy away from other systems. So it just lowers efficiency everywhere. Yeah, you, you kind of pretty much touched on what I was going to say, but the, the warmer it is, the more your body needs to cool itself, the more it needs to vasodilate, which means the, the blood vessels, especially around the surface of your skin, open up, they get bigger and they, they allow more blood flow. And what that does is it, in a sense, like redirects blood away from, let's say, working, working systems, like even like the innards of the muscle tissue, organs, everything else like that. So what happens is really you are like, in a sense, putting more blood out to the surface of your skin to cool yourself and less to the working muscles because it's like a fight or flight mechanism, which just basically kind of oxygen deprives you and, and you're not getting as much fuel because of the need to cool the body with the blood coming closer to the surface, um, which is the main reason. You're just putting yourself in a compromised state, basically, mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, which is what altitude really is doing when it comes down to it. So it's not perfect. It's not going to get you the same as if you were going to go live at no. altitude, but it's a start. Yeah, it is the best thing you can do. It's, it's again, it's, it's the best thing a normal person can do. You know, when I went, um, when I went to Tahoe two years ago, I went out and I spent 14 days before the race at elevation. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people told me that it was a waste of time. Like it was just wasn't long enough. Like two weeks is not long enough. It can take three, six months to fully acclimate to altitude, like literally, but you will just begin to start to see some of the beginning adaptation happen at like the 10 day to two week mark. Right. So why go out there two weeks early? Is it even worth it? I took two weeks off of work. I mean, it was a great vacation, but like, was it worth it? And I'll say yes. And the, the reason it was yes is because I knew what it felt like to run in the mountains every day for 14 days leading up to the race. And I got comfortable with that feeling so that when the start gun went off, there was no shock to my system. Even if no physiological benefit happened, I'd do it all over again because I was comfortable in my body with my effort because I finally was adjusting even that way. So go to the mountains as often as you can, even if there's no physiological benefit. That's one of my favorite examples for the difference between training and coaching because okay. science would tell you you poisoned yourself that from 10 to 14 days is your lowest point in your dip of adaptation to altitude that for your first 24 to 36 hours you are the least amount compromised and then it goes down and it goes down and it goes down and you hit your bottom point sometime between 10 and 14 days and then you start coming back 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 up but it's about the same time to get to the bottom as it is to get to the top and so sometime after 10 to 14 days you start creeping back up so science would say you actually literally poisoned yourself and compromised everything. But what science doesn't say is the power of tolerating things mentally. Like we talked about, races don't get easier, they get more tolerable. That's what happened with you with altitude. And so I would have told you, and I think I probably did, don't do 14 days, like do a full 21 or show up the night before. Mm -hmm. But you knew your body, you knew your mind, and you showed up and you nailed that race despite science telling you that's not smart. And so there's always that disconnect between what's best on paper and what actually works in real life with lots of different circumstances in there. I would do it all over again. Uh, I will say just my own perspective there. Uh, I was in the shitter until about, ooh, three days out from that race. So like, I feel like I hit my low, like I went out for a run. I was there for a week and a half. I was at like the 10 day mark and it was the worst run I think I had all year. I think I came out of it just in time. Okay. At low, to be honest, because I was, it was the Wednesday, Wednesday before the race, which was on a Sunday. And I went out in Alta, Utah at like 9,000 feet. I was staying real high. 
Um, and I think I ran 8.30 pace and it was the hardest 8.30 I'd ever run on flat terrain. So point being is, um, is I think there's a lot of truth to that. I do think that I'm a responder and some people are responders. You know that with my training, I, pop, I, think, I think I did see some benefit and I hit my, if I would have had to race on that Wednesday, it would have been a very different story. I think it's what I'm saying. So, um, it's crazy, huh? It really is. Um, okay, we're going to move on. Uh, Robert Leipheimer um, says, I compete in Spartan obstacle course races and have been training for the upcoming 2021 season. Lately, I've been having some fibular head pain when I run anything over three miles. It doesn't hurt when I do anything else, bike, walk, lift, etc. The pain only occurs when I run or go downstairs. There's also some snapping in the knees at times, tightness in the hip, IT band and ankle. Yeah, sounds like all common runner niggles and niggles. I've been going to PT and doing the recommended banded exercises along with foam rolling and stretching. Have you seen anything like this before with distance runners? Uh, yeah, all the time. What are some things to fix? Thanks for your help. <laughs> I don't even know if I want to open that can. Uh, should we do broad strokes? Sure. That's the only way we can, really. Imbalances cause these things. And that can be mechanical. That can be muscular. That can actually be shoes and stride, or it can be an imbalance of what you can tolerate versus what type of load you're putting on yourself right now. But you have to adjust all four or five of those fronts one by one until you find out what the real difference is. I was in seeing my physical therapist yesterday, um, guy, Dr. Josh Shandell, who I really respect. And we just had this conversation yesterday. And, you know, his belief is that you have, you have two things. He says 70% of injuries start from either the hip or the low back. What is going on here? Back and his pitting out hard and he's but showing. But look at the difference. His, his right pit is about the size of a soccer ball and his left pit's the size of a golf ball as far as the stain goes. Talk about imbalances. Yeah, you got something going on there, brother. <laughs> Continue. Um, and, he, and, and I agree with this. Basically, let's just say two-thirds of the problem starts at the foot or a third of the problem start at your feet, no matter what your issue is, knees, shins, hips, but about two-thirds start at the lower back sacrum or the hip up top, right? Everything is a byproduct of something. And he believes it's typically the lower back pelvis and hip that that refer to everything else. So, um, and that means like shin splints, knee problems, foot pain, arch issues, IT band, all of it usually starts at one end of the leg, right? So I am no pro here, but I would say make sure that things are in line there. Like I am a huge advocacy advocate of chiropractic work, making sure your lower back is loose and mobile. If things like deadlifts are making your lower back too tight and other movements, cut them out and go to single leg movements and give that rear chain a little bit of a reprieve. Sometimes that can loosen up the rest of the chain. Um, simple things like being in the right shoe, working from the bottom up, little things like that can go a long ways. And you might have some experimenting you need to do. But I would say go away from parallel stance motion if you're really struggling with this many aches and pains. Quit the squats, quit the deadlifts, and go into all single plane motion stuff. Anything from hip bridges, split squats, lunges, box step ups, because in your condition, uh, there is imbalance. And I would work single plane instead of, um, or I would work single leg instead of uh, parallel stance motions. That's all I have to say about that. And and it can be a quick fix, and it can be a long fix. And I don't really know what we're dealing with. Yeah. I had IT band issues that took me out of running my freshman year of college. I lost my whole freshman track season and I eventually quit running partially because of that. And I went to baseball and then I came back to running. And three years later, they came back uh, within 20 minutes of putting on the last pair of brand new shoes I had left over from my freshman year of college. They were just sitting in a box for years. I threw them on, did 400 meters worth of jogging and my IT bands were barking. <laughs> 
They had not barked in three years. I took the shoes off, finished barefoot that day because it was just a warm up before a lifting session. And I've not had IT band tightness since. It was as simple as I was in the wrong shoe. And it took seven months to undo that, but it could have just been as simple as switching the shoe out. You know, sometimes that happens. Other, I have SI issues that I've been working on for six years of structure and imbalance. That's not a quick fix, but it's, it's identifying the variables one by one and changing them. That's incredible, actually, something that simple. Isn't it? You know, I ran in a shoe. And I got a stress fracture, my first foot stress fracture into my junior year of college. I went all the way out to Colorado to altitude train. So I got a cabin, a shitty little cabin with some friends. I got a job over the summer and we lived outside of Winter Park, Colorado. I was in monster shape. We had a 5K road race out there and my teammate was the steeplechase national champ, John Leroy. And I beat him in this 5K by like 15 to 20 seconds. I was ready to come back and run. I bought a pair of Adidas shoes, went to Boulder Running Company, which is the big running company in Boulder at the time. And there was a defect in the shoe underneath my force metatarsal. There was a bump, some sort of something in there. And my first run in it, a week before coming back, went out for a run and eight miles in, I had a cracked foot. And it was something as simple as a shoe. It's like one of those things you almost file a lawsuit over. It was a shoe defect. There was a lump in the shoe and it hit my metatarsal just right. Took me out the whole rest of the season. It can be little things like that that pop up just like your shoe example, which is crazy to think. I was completely injury free at the time. Um, point being, there's a lot of nuances, which is crazy. It is. I'll move on. Robbie Weir. I've got a question on the treadmill 15 for 15 as a relatively new runner five years ago. So I'd done the challenge and got, so I'd done the challenge and got 1.40 miles. That's a good score, Robbie. That's a very good score. Congratulations. I had to adapt the treadmill with some blocks to get 15% and an app to measure grade. So I hope it was right. I like that. Uh, my question is my legs felt fine, but I was close to throwing up my lungs, which is not possible, Robbie. I'm also struggling <laughs> to break I'm also struggling to break 20 for a 5K. So do I need more aerobic training to work on heart and lungs or more top end work? Well, if your legs weren't burning, it's not aerobic. Meaning the trouble is not a, is not your aerobic capacity. It is your ability to go anaerobic. Lungs and stomach burn. If you feel like you're going to puke, that is a surefire sign that you are working over your lactate threshold and you are poisoning yourself in a workout sense. Um, first of all, this is perplexing to me because you, you haven't broke 20 in the 5K, but running 1.40 miles would tell me you should be running sub 18 for sure, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Easy. Yeah, you should be in the 17. So I'm trying to understand what we're missing there. Um, just on that state, uh, this is even your real question, but on that alone, I would say you need to work on speed and efficiency because you can grind, it sounds like, but maybe your running economy is poor, um, because they don't translate. A 140 on a fifteen fifteen test translates to a sub 18 minute 5k. In fact, when I first tested that, I think I was a low 16 5k'er and I went 1.46 <laughs> and I was almost to 15 minutes. So point being is there's some disconnect there, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and, and I, the disconnect could simply be that the jerry-rigged setup and your treadmill's calibration is just not accurate, but it almost doesn't matter. Like If you keep that setup, then you just have to get better at that number. Even if that number's not right, it'll be consistent and you can track fitness. But yeah, I would say that it's time for you to start adding anaerobic work in and then retest and see how that works. Give yourself mm -hmm. three to six weeks anaerobic and then test her out. Yeah, I my hat's off to you for that jerry-rig setup, by the way. I really appreciate I like that. that. Yeah. Um, and I will tell you that when I do that test, and I don't know if you're the same Bracken, but, um, 
it's always my chest cavity that fills up on that one. Like my lungs are going or my, my legs are going on me. I always feel that one in my chest, my breathing uh, up top more than I will feel in my legs, partially because there's not a ton of impact in that, in that workout. But um, I think what you're feeling, Robbie, is kind of how that test feels for most people. So that's how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm miserable during that test. But I wouldn't say it's my legs giving out. I would say it's, it's my, my lungs. They burn, but they're not what causes me to slow. Mm, same. Um, health. Canned health. <clears throat> do you know why it seems like runners only use vests with water bottles in the front rather than a hydration pack on their back with a tube slash straw? Is this the preferred way to drink water on long runs? Is there a good ratio of water consumption to time? Um, she has two questions or he has two questions. That's the first one. Well, as someone who spent far too much time testing out all types of carrying hydration, there are a few reasons for this. The first is that it's more comfortable. Having front-loaded soft flasks of some sort just carries differently than wearing water sloshing on your back. Uh, it's more accessible for you to refill or to adjust. And then finally, you can see what you're consuming. I ran into a problem my second year in Killington at the Spartan Race World Championships because I was miscalculating how much fluid I was taking in. When I was about two-thirds of the way through the race, I thought... It feels like I'm about out of water. So I've had about 25 ounces of water with gels that I've been taking in um, by hand. So I've got I've just got to stop for a bit. And I started cramping eventually in my gut. And what I realized when I got done is that I had only had about 11 ounces of water at that point, but I had already had six gels because that was two and a half hours into the race. And that meant that my gut was cramping because I didn't have enough water to actually flush out and digest my gels but I thought I had taken in more than I had. And you have to suck harder on the tube to get water out. So you can't track your water intake if you can't see it. So those are my two pieces. It's more comfortable, it's generally lighter, and you can visually watch what you're consuming. And then if you have to refill it, you can refill it really easily. I never thought about that point, just knowing where you're at with water. Um, yeah. I When you first put on like a vest and it's front loaded, you know, we're used to carrying backpacks around in our life. So we're used to that, like back loaded, like in life, right? That feels normal. But have you ever put a backpack on and then tried to run to catch up to your friends back in school or something? It's just a little less efficient. So you're going to put this vest on first and it's going to feel weird and you're going to go for a run. You're going to hate it. I did the first time I did too. But once you adjust to it and get used to it, it is significantly more efficient and significantly more comfortable over duration for sure. Runners typically have a slight forward lean and a front loaded vest sort of just kind of assist that. Whereas I feel like a back loaded vest um, works against that in a weird way. So like for me, front load for sure. I, I would say try it and you'll get it. That's what I think. And I also really like waist packs. Yeah. I'm a waste pack guy. Speaking of which, have you tested out your new Nathan pack? I forgot to order it. Oh, Kirk. I'm going to order it. I'll order it right when we get done. I like it. Yeah. Other question. Oh, also, do you know the order of impact to the body of running on road versus track versus trail versus treadmill? Mostly for easy runs. Uh, I'm guessing speed work is higher impact in general. Maybe not, though. So where do you get the most impact? Where do you get the least impact? Let's order it off. All things being equal, the harder the surface, the more impact. However, the first time you return to a trail, <laughs> you're sore the next day. Not necessarily because of impact, but... You get good at whatever you run on. But yeah, the harder the surface, the more you take pounding. And uh, uh, I would say that downhills we're gonna, are going to lead the way yep. on that one for sure. But it's that simple, actually. I would say least amount of impact is going to be 
uphill, uh, least amount of impact, uphill treadmill, then uphill, uphill real surface, then treadmill flat surface, trail flat surface, road flat surface, and then all highest impact would be uh, downhills. That's what I'm sticking with. Yeah. And track, track sits in between trail and road. Yeah, somewhere in there. Uh, Trevor Johnson. <clears throat> With this, <laughs> we talked about this before we started recording. This is a ridiculous question, but I'll ask you anyways. Okay. With the success of your podcast over the last year, <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. I how do. Are you, how are you mentally preparing for a return to racing? I know you both are used to a certain level of celebrity, but I'd have to assume that the number of fans approaching you before and after your races will be at an all-time high after getting to know you guys through the running public. Returning to racing and coming back from injuries are tough, but this would be a very different type of obstacle for you guys. Have you put any thought into this? And what would you like your listeners to know about race day interactions? I, it's a considerate question, correct? It is. Well, I'm going to be fine. People just assume I'm Robert Killian. <laughs> so they're going to not even know you're there. No. If anything, they're going to come up to him. That's it? That's your answer? No. I mean, it's it'll be nice to to chat with people who are interested about training. It will be interesting because anytime I talk with someone on a coaching consult or or bump into someone, they know everything that's going on in my life mm. because we talk about it all the time. And so, yeah, I guess he's right. There are a lot of people out there who, who know us personally yet have never met us. Kind of an interesting thought to think about. Um, I would say that you use the term celebrity quite loosely. <laughs> Very loosely. <laughs> I, will, I will say that. Um, I'm, uh, let me just real talk this. I think um, I think before the race has happened in the morning. Um, first of all, I don't expect like much to change. So, but in case, um, no, I don't either. I would say if we're in, if we're if we're in our warm up phase and we're you know we also are competitors ourselves and we give a shit. We give a lot of shits about how well we do and how it goes. So, I would say pre race a hello is fantastic. I would say um, after the race. Full conversations are fantastic. Yeah. Um, I would just say, like, you know how it goes before the race, and, and we do take it seriously. So, hello is fantastic. Um, nabbing for any more time than that might get a little distracting. I don't know. You know how the warm-ups yeah. are timed out, porta-potty runs, getting to the start line, managing, getting in last minute. They never let us in in time in that elite wave in the morning, so we're always scrambling to get our stuff together and get out. Uh, but afterwards, let's have a beer and hang out. That's exactly it. A couple sentences beforehand, whatever you can fit in while jogging past. And then afterwards, let it rip. little ass slap and a fist bump, I'll take that any day. I'll give them out too. You got to be careful with butt slaps on race morning though. <laughs> dude, dude, especially around you. Oh, man. All right, Emery. Emery asks. Actually, I've got one. Oh, okay. If we're doing not serious but serious kind of borderline questions, I got one from someone who wanted to remain unnamed. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the recent trend of other podcasts or coaching services blatantly copying everything you do? I wasn't going to ask it. Uh, we, oh man. Uh, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, Bracken. Let's lead with that. I will say there's been a trend with people coincidentally discussing similar topics and claiming them as their own on their social media. But a couple of other podcasts that have mimicked this style, even coined names of their podcast episodes similar to what we're doing. Um, and all I can think is I'm flattered. I'll roll my eyes once in a while, but uh, I'm all right. I'm all right with it. What about you? What do you think, Bracken? Um, you're right. 
if someone's doing something we're doing, it means we're doing it right. We didn't come up with most of our ideas. We gleaned them from elsewhere. So we would be hypocritical to, to really be upset if anyone else was doing the same type of thing we're doing. We don't really need to get into that. I will say this. We notice. <laughs> we do. <laughs> An episode and you put it out the same topic seven to 14 days later. We notice. When we put out a training Tuesday and the next week or two, someone else does the exact same one, we notice. Are you free to do it? Of course you are. We'll take it as a compliment, but we notice. We've had a side conversation or two off air about this, haven't we, Bracken? And this is, this is a free country. Everyone can pursue their wealth, health, and happiness however they want, and we support that. But just know we notice. You know what I'm going to say, um, and this I actually genuinely mean, and part of the reason we started this podcast was because there was such a lack of knowledge being given in the industry. Um, I will give a shout out to Matt B. Davis, um, who's been doing this longer than anybody. And now that we've done it for a year, I know how damn hard it is. And so my hat's off to Matt B. Davis, but he provides a different type of OCR resource, which is media news, right? Um, which he does a damn good job at. But we kind of lost sight of the training aspect and helping people, right? I've discussed this before on the podcast. Uh, a lot of podcasts did a good job of interviewing athletes. I think there was a number of those out there, but everything kind of got lost um, as far as like, how do we get better? And the trend has definitely switched to that. There's yeah. actual resources outside of us where people are giving you real tangibles to go and use on your own. So for that, like, I'm a little proud whether it's from us or otherwise. If our main goal is to get information out, if people are echoing what we're saying, whether they're monetizing it or not, they're echoing what we're saying and they are enhancing our mission, which is to get info out there. So that's great. You guys do what you do. Don't be afraid to try your own thing or even name it your own name, but <laughs> keep doing it. Let's get good info out there. Next question. Back. Emery, <laughs> is there any advice for adjusting my road metric race paces to OCR? Or maybe even how to use race paces in OCR training. I can see using 5K pace to do 5K interval workout on the track, but can my 5K road time help me determine what my pace OCR 400 should be, for example? I know the best answer is race more OCR events and use that pace, but we're kind of limited right now, so I'm curious if you guys have a general rule of thumb. Also recognize Bracken is great at compromise running, and I am not, so I will probably have to default to OCR pace is road pace minus 50%. <laughs> Laughing emoji. <laughs> I feel your pain. I spent a long time trying to come up with a formula because there are running pace calculators online that use their formulas. And you know what I came up with after years of trying? It's useless. It's a feeling. It's a feeling. And so you target paces that are proven to improve your actual running skill and metrics. But when it comes to OCR work, compromised work and race day, you stick with perceived exertion and what you have proven in practice. So sometimes you do hear pros talk about it. Mac, uh, Ryan Kempson talked about in Jacksonville when he had his breakout win that he was trying to run in the 520s on every single runnable section and it worked. But it wasn't because he did a 5K time trial in average five minutes and just converted that with a percentage and got 520. It's because he proved to himself in training that on semi-technical nasty terrain under fatigue, he could run in the 520s and he thinks that's what it took to win. Mm -hmm. So the pace is derived from effort and training rather than the other way around when it comes to OCR type work. That's my answer to it. Yeah, it's, you know, he uses the example, what pace should my OCR 400s 
in training, for example. Do I think you can base that workout off your 5K? A little bit, I do. I think something like that's possible, especially if it's done on clean terrain. Um, but when it comes to like applying something like a 5K to the race course, I think that's a little more difficult. It is. Yeah. For example, for OCR 400s, I would call them OCR mile repeats. We know how we both work that way. <laughs> uh, you know, I would say you're looking at 10K to half marathon pace for that one. If you can yep. calculate that based off your 5K, you could probably somewhat figure it out. Um, but when it comes to racing, that's that feeling. Get 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 cozy with it, as we talked about in our last training Tuesday, right? So it's about. Yeah, it's yeah. tricky. Yeah, I don't have much more to add to that. Do you? No, no. I mean, it's. I'd like to give you a solid. You know, multiply by 1.81, and you've got it. But I've tried it. I've tried it. I've tried it. I can't do it. Yep. Uh, Jess Sullivan. Sully. Yes. Uh. So I have a question, little on the nitty gritty and piddle paddle of training for Tuesday, of training for training Tuesday. So your guys training for compromised and speed workouts to get ready. Are those all done on a treadmill? If so, what are you doing for small muscle activation and gluten hammy? Treadmill in a way works quads more than glutes, a lot less, even on an incline. That might also tie into your coaching segment. Is it the coach's responsibility to acknowledge and work in training? Uh <clears throat> That's the question I basically I'm getting. Compromise, is he saying, do you do your compromise work on treadmill or not? I'll start off by saying, I actually believe treadmill engages hamstring for me more than quad at flat inclines. Okay. It contracts differently, but who cares? We'll put that aside. I almost always start off my off season on the treadmill. It forces me to transition. It forces me to, to get the pace going. And I can just look at myself in the mirror and keep myself together. And it's sterile. And then I transfer to outside. You want to continue with that? Or is that? No, that, that's a good start for me. So okay. I start indoor, indoor, I get the skill and the technique down, and then I move outdoor where I have to forcefully engage myself. But I only do that once I'm confident that I can hold form and cadence once I no longer have the treadmill doing the pace for me and the mirror doing the, the self-reflection period for me. I would say it comes way more down to the quads and hamstrings versus the quads versus glutes. Those aren't necessarily like antagonistic of each other. So it yeah. comes out more of the quads and hammies in my opinion. The glutes aren't like, yes, they're used and contracted when you're running, but like most of the force I feel like is being derived from the others um, in a sense. But uh, first of all, yes, there's a place and time for both. Bracken, you've been doing both on the treadmill and outside. So I feel like this question is saying like, if you do it all on the treadmill, you're going to lose some sort of like, stimulus and i agree but we're not doing everything mm -hmm. on the treadmill if you're doing a compromise run work on the treadmill the next day bracken's outside running through snow right so you're getting all the activation you need um the nice thing about the treadmill and it's probably there's two th ways i like the treadmill one for incline work and one for compromise work and i like it because it's seamless i can get into a pace i know where i'm at i can jump to my strength move get right back on it's all right there and it forces me to get right back into pace as soon as i hop on the treadmill like if i'm doing this outside I may hit my burpees and then go into a run and work into the pace that I want to achieve. But that might take me 20 seconds to get back up to speed because I'm sucking wind post burpees. You have to think when you're on the treadmill, that treadmill's going at 530 pace, whether I like it or not, which means as soon as my foot hits it, it's teaching me to transition quickly with and getting comfortable with that full feeling at race pace post transition. So that's the biggest thing I like about the treadmill is there's no way around it. You got to get right back to race pace and outside it doesn't always happen. That way. You nailed it. Treadmill is a tool. Technical terrain is a tool. Snow is a tool. We use what we can, but we don't rely upon it. Is it the coach's responsibility to acknowledge and work with this in training? 
Yeah, sure. We're, the way we formulate our plan is going to give you balance. I feel like a good coach is going to give you all the stimulus you need. And if you have a treadmill workout one day, my guess is that coach is going to put you on some real training. So sure. Yeah. And, and we believe in chatting through the training plan, going over it, making sure everyone's on the same page. I just had one of these chats yesterday. It was someone decided they're going to Jacksonville yesterday, Kirk. They said, all right, I'm just going to go do it. And I said, all right, for the first week, at least one run per week has to be on the sloppiest thing you can find. Yep. And once we get three weeks out, all our quality is going to be except for one point a day where we're still doing speed refinement. So yeah, you chat those things through. All right. Big Bob. Big Bob says, oh, I like this. I'm planning to do a solo 24-hour ultra walk this spring. I'm curious what tips and insights you may have, if any, since it's not OCR or running event. Uh, to make sure I'm prepared. Extra shoes, socks, clothes, question mark. Must have foods, question mark. Appreciate it, guys. And for whatever it is worth, I'm tall, have suspect knees, and weigh 285. Now I get why his name's Big Bob. Uh, and I will likely and hopefully be 275 pounds when I do it. Thank you. Yes, to all. <laughs> this is the type of event that, in my personal opinion, you must do a prep event prior. You don't know what hour six of walking with a pack feels like until you get to hour six of walking with a pack. Mm. Socks and shoes can work really well for two hours. But what happens two hours after that? So yeah, you got to test it out and you got to have a backup plan for everything. I think the most important thing is, is you're going to have to come, when I say close, I mean, like you're never going to come close to 24 hours in training, but the back-to-back -back long walks, I would say for you are going to be very important. You know, getting six hours on feet, two days in a row, for example, what's going to wear out on you exactly what you had mentioned. Like you're going to have to test those waters. You cannot go into that blind. If you don't take care of your feet, you're going to be completely screwed for one. So like, make sure you have a plan for that, you know, changing socks often, shoes, potentially bringing blister preventatives, things like that. Um, but yeah, I would say if you're going to do this, let's see this spring, I would say once every three to four weeks, you're at least getting out and putting in six plus hours on feet over the weekend for sure. Yeah. What would you say? Yeah. Especially walking. It's less damaging. You can do that. People go out and hike six hours every weekend. You know, you can do long walks more often. And then not only do you practice using everything, you practice cycling between it. Mm -hmm. You set intervals on your watch. And when it goes off, you have to stop and switch shoes. You have to stop and put tape on. You know, even if you don't need bl blister tape, you practice doing it so that on race day, everything is routine. You don't have to think, you just respond. I would say I'd have two recommend. Now that I'm thinking this through a little more as you were chatting, um, I think I would do two things. One, I would do a sun up to sundown hike. And then I would do the exact opposite of that with no sleep beforehand, because that's going to also be one of your biggest adversaries is limited sleep. So I would stay awake all day. And then I would hike from like 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. or something ridiculous where you're completely sleep deprived because that you cannot account for. So I would do a sun up to sundown long hike one day. And then I would go for a true sleep deprived, I hate to say it, but like, that's going to be the nitty gritty. So I would encourage you, how often do you hike at night? You know, Big Bob, do you ever, you know, what that's going to feel like. So I would suggest an overnight hike sleep deprived as well. Man, I don't think it's something I have any desire to do, but I support people going out there and building up some mental calluses. Yeah. Hats off to you. Let us know how it goes, Big Bob. Uh, Chris Davis, I find that the pace I can hit on morning runs is considerably slower then I can get into on runs later in the day, even with a decent warm-up. Given races are in the mornings, how can I negate this as much as possible? Do you guys find this too? Admittedly, my early morning runs can be pretty early, and I, perhaps my body just hasn't warmed up at all. Yeah, I find that. But there's a difference. If I roll out of bed and head out the door, 
I'm going to be 30 to 40 seconds per mile slower to start with. Easy. But when I do, I've been on 6 a.m. to 6.15 workout start times for the last three weeks now. Um, I'm getting up at 4.40 mm. so that I can not, it's not early morning by the time I get started. I've been up long enough that it's like the middle of the day. So you, the earlier you get up, the less it's early morning when you do your workout. There's a big difference between rolling out of your bed into your running shoes to squeeze it in before work and getting up, eating, having your coffee, walk into the race venue, moving around. I don't think they're actually there. It's not a one-to-one -one translation. In fact, it's almost no. an adrenaline and nerves. I feel pretty loose on race morning almost all the time, whether the race goes well or not. I think it has to do with, because how long are you up before you race? If we have a 7.30 start time at the latest, I'm getting up at 5.30, but probably earlier than that, right? Yeah, I don't get up earlier or later than three hours before a race start. Yeah. So which is why I can't stand 7am start time. <laughs> right, you got to get up early. Yeah. There's a concept though, that high end athletes use, which is they do a shakeout run before their race. Mm -hmm. I know John Elbin do does this because I saw him do it on the Spartan cruise. Uh, pro level athletes will oftentimes, if there's a 9am start time at 6am, they're going for a 20 minute shakeout jog. Woodsy does it. I've seen him do yeah. it outside the hotel room when we stay in the same hotel room there's some crazy guy running back and forth in the parking lot at 5 30 in the morning it's woodsy when i was at my best i did and but it, it requires a level of fitness that 20 minute jog before your race doesn't impact <laughs> your race right, um, right. but i would say that a 10 minute walk or yoga session or spin bike can do the exact same thing so if you're going to run let's say you have a 5 a.m run and you're not going to get up earlier than four you just refuse to do that roll out of bed go downstairs, walk or jog around for five to 10 minutes, and mm -hmm. then go to the bathroom, take a quick wake up shower, you know, take your coffee down and then go for your run. And your body's already primed. Warm up that core body temp helps a lot, whether you're a coffee drinker or, or putting some hot water and tea in your system and overdressing and you're like kind of a little sweaty and uncomfortable, that'll loosen up a lot of that muscle tissue and fascia too, just raising the core body temp. So that helps me a lot. I'm an advocate of overdressing and getting hot and sweaty beforehand. So be my tip. I got one last question, Bracken. That's it. I don't know what you got. All right. We're going to call it. It's getting long. All right. One last question here. This is from Dan Saxby. Dan Saxby asks, how do you handle heart rate spikes due to hills when you're trying to do a tempo run. My lactate threshold is 157, according to my Garmin watch. So do I walk until it goes back down or power through the hill and ignore my 170 rate? Nitty gritty again. Nitty gritty. I like it. So there's a concept of flattening the course. And that is you flatten the hills, the up and the down, so that everything reads as one flat exertion rate. Not pace rate, but exertion. So in a threshold run, what, if we're talking about a true lactate threshold run, the actual purpose of it is to sit right at or right below lactate threshold the entire time. We don't care about pace other than to track how we're progressing. Pace doesn't matter. Distance doesn't matter. It is duration and heart rate. And so to that end, the only answer is you adjust your effort and your pace to stay at the correct heart rate. You should walk. If need be, you do whatever you got to do. I wouldn't think it would take walking, uh, walking. But if you're running threshold, walking, 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 walking jogging, uh, you have to reduce your pace. But the effort should stay about the same. Whatever effort you're keeping, you do that. You just naturally slow down with it. I go back and forth on this. I I would assume that yeah, the heart rate's going to spike on a hill, and it does. But does the hill eventually give you like let's say a downhill later that's going to equal it out where your heart rate's going to drop, and you'll end up averaging where you want to anyways? Mm -hmm. um, 
I go back and forth. I think whatever you feel good about, you can do. That's what I think. I think being reduced to a walk on something like a tempo workout would be really hard for me to swallow. So I understand that conundrum. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, does you do you allow your heart rate to spike sometimes when terrain dictates? It spikes a little, but I try to get it under control as fast as possible. Now, if I'm doing a like a pure threshold work, I slow as needed to keep the effort and heart rate there. But if I'm doing a workout that's preparing me for race feeling rather than doing a metric-based workout, then I let it rev. And yeah, then you teach yourself to over rev and use the downhill down. I don't think you can go wrong, but it depends on the length of your hill. Right. If it's a 20 meter hill, let it spike a little, recover on the down and get back to it. But if it's a 200 meter hill, yeah, you got to adjust, unfortunately. And you might be power hiking at first. But over time, that's going to improve quickly. I think my concern with that is like during a race, how much are you really like if the hill happens and it requires a hard effort, you know, the heart rate's going to spike. And if you, I don't know, if you succumb to it every single time in training, it might affect your ability to push through on race day. I don't know. Maybe not. But Well, and that's why we, that's why we pair intervals and sims with threshold work. Yeah, you have to. Exactly. Um, that's the last question I have, brother. Do you have any more? You're out? I'm out. That was enough. I had 25-ish or so, at least in the queue. Most of mine, I screenshot, you hit anyways. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I will just say, if you haven't gone and subscribed or purchased the running public training plan, I think you should. Jacksonville's uh, five weeks away now. It is not too late. If you're waffling over whether you're ready or not, um, why don't you do something about it? And if you're not running Jacksonville, why don't you set yourself up for future success? in the summer races that were more likely to happen by getting fit now instead of sitting in your uh, whatever pattern you're currently in. I'm very biased, but uh, I think this can help a lot of people, including you. So go check it out. It's cheap, isn't it, Bracken? It's very, very cheap. Yeah. So just wanted to plug that again. And also, um, I don't know if you've looked, Bracken, but I said a thank you a couple of weeks ago. Um, we've had a number of reviews come in again as well on Apple Podcasts in the last week or two. Um, so thank you again for those who took the time to do that. Uh, love reading through those. Yeah. I, and we're not saying we're going to stop doing it if, you know, we start plateauing as a podcast, but, and the higher we climb up on these charts, the easier it makes it for us to continue doing this thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. This isn't like an ultimatum, but success <laughs> breeds success. And you guys have a direct role in our success. Your acknowledgement of the content, honestly, dictates our success as a podcast so thank you very much yeah without you guys we're nothing that's how it works bracken kirk do you know what i'm about to go do you're about to work out for sure oh yeah but what what workout do i have today um well you're either gonna go hit another terrible two mile-ish exercise situation because it's a thursday it's a skill work day or you are going to hit some more threshold work because that's been the focus of your week well i threshold yesterday oh you're gonna go ski no, I'm, I have back-to-back -back quality this week. So tempo yesterday, and then, yeah, a, it's about going to be about a 12-minute, very intense running and strength-combined compromised workout. You're doing like the upside-down, inside-out Fran or whatever it's yep. called? Yep, strung out backwards, upside-down Fran. Yeah, that one. Good luck. All right, well, thank you for listening, folks. Keep the questions rolling. And for everyone who signed up for the plan, let's get to work. Thank you.